0: Welcome to The Pre-Work, a limited podcast series about being in a relationship with one another. Part one of this podcast focuses on the somewhat divergent ways BIPOC and white folks can prepare to go on an equity journey together, while part two tackles justice and equity, but for queer and straight folks, I'm your host, your narrator, and sometimes panelist, Crystal Cheatham, alongside Melvin Bray, who serves as our interviewer. Whiteness is infatuated with itself, Today the construct of whiteness does a lot to remain the center of others' consciousness. As an example, it overrepresents itself on TV and in politics and in business and in education. Just about anywhere that stories are being told. Stories that shape people's imaginations, their decisions, their lives. Just think about it. When questioned as to why the white male was chosen to be the office manager, whiteness will say stuff like, he was the best one for the job. Or when choosing yet another white woman to star in the TV pilot, whiteness will say she worked the hardest. They had the it factor. This is as good as it gets. It may not be perfect, but it's the best we've ever had. To put it in a nutshell, whiteness is infatuated with itself, but we don't have to be. Not being, however, is not the easiest. And so today, Melvin goes a long way to tease out the truth from his panelists. Again with him here are Tori Williams-Douglas, creator of White Homework, and Sterling Freeman, co-founder of Counterpart Consulting. And joining us today is Sharon Groves, Vice President of Partner Engagement for Auburn Seminary. And now, dear listener, I want to talk to you about how this episode is a bit different. This episode hits hard in that it is honest and open in a more candid way. As the editor and your guide, I listened to it many times with the hope of shaving off unnecessary branches from the true narrative, but so much of it seemed to support the whole. What you're going to listen to is a minimally cut episode on race equity. As you listen, ask yourself, why are these conversations hard to hear? For BIPOC folks, this may be a therapeutic conversation. And for white folks, it may be hard to hear some of the things that are being said. But for all of us, it is a stride forward worth taking. See you on the other side.
1: Let's start here with our conversation today with this idea of cultural infatuation that the West seems to have and the various myths that grow up around it, like uh, the myth of supremacy or the myth of meritocracy or the myth of perpetual innocence. I'm sure you're all familiar with these stories that we've been shaped by. What have you seen stories like these play out in your own lives? And what sort of damage have you seen them do?
2: Well, Melvin, one of the things that, uh, first of all, brother, just a brilliant uh, exegesis, as it were, of whiteness that you just did, that was amazing and powerful and so accurate. And what it makes me think about is it makes me think about the ways in which um, whiteness is created and made up and everything sort of around it, uh, as you just sort of ex- uh, uh, explained, uh, is sort of is made up as well. And so I, I think that it points to this sort of ability, particularly uh, in America, as we think about how race is playing out, uh, how good Americans sort of society has been, white dominated society has been at creating illusion, uh, creating things mm. uh, thing to, 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 so, so that things seem as if they are when they really aren't. What's so fascinating about meritocracy is that there is um, a, an, a European scholar by the name of Michael Young, who actually coined that term meritocracy uh, back in sort of the fifties. And he coined that term actually as a critique of class and caste society. That is to say that uh, Michael Young was actually projecting that there would be this society where sort of social location and power and those sort of things would be allocated uh, based on individual sort of ability. Uh, But actually society was quite the opposite. So it was kind of this sort of really kind of pejorative uh, kind of t- of critique and term uh, as it related to what was really happening in class and caste society in the European context. well, uh, as uh, uh, America does, as we do, uh, it, it it gets taken to the next level, right it's It's kind of like race, you know, come to America, here's your race, welcome, you know, and so it it gets taken to another level and and so meritocracy in America begins to be that term begins to be used. Uh, as something that is projecting something that is, that really is not, right? And so this whole thing about, um, you know, work hard, play by the rules, you know, keep your nose clean, make good decisions, uh, and you will be successful, whatever successful means in a a meritocracy is kind of what we have been, have we ingested and breathed in as people living in this culture and society. And one of the things that I've seen, Melvin, is I've seen it work particularly as we think about how this impacts black and brown folks. It's one of the things that I've seen, it's been a thread, is that come what may, we're going to work hard and make it work, right? And I I think one of the things that that has happened with that is that we've often run in uh, to uh, the idea that because it is not happening for us, that we are failures, uh, that there is something deficient mm. in us, in our communities, mm. uh, that we must not be doing it right. What that really boils down to is that we're not really being white, which is something that we can't do, right? <laughs> and, yes, so, yeah. and, so, and so I, I think that, that this whole myth of meritocracy really needs to be sort of burst and busted open, right? so that we can really begin to talk about um, that this is something that never was and really talk about how this thing is about, how power operates in our culture and that it really actually ultimately uh, has very little to do with keeping your nose clean, making good choices, uh, because what we know is is that we, we can list a, lot, a long list of people uh, that we know who have done that and still have not, uh, risen uh, to be what's called successful in our culture, in our context. And just the way in which around this whole idea of whiteness, the normalization of it, uh, and, and sort of the things that have been built around that, yeah. uh, to say we live in a society that anyone uh, mm-hmm. can make it uh, if you just have the Protestant work ethic mm-hmm. uh, and that you do the right things. And so um, you know the, the sort of connection, the, the, the ways in which this is rooted Sort of in uh, the context the, that that you just uh, just talked about, Melvin, I think is important for us to talk about.
1: Yeah, you know that makes me think about this particular moment in which we're recording this. Uh, it, we're in the middle of the Chauvin trial, mm-hmm. uh, Officer Chauvin being the man who murdered George Floyd. And I'm reminded that over the past decade, every time another one of these state-sanctioned murders happens, one of the first go-to responses is, well, he was no choir boy. She Mm -hmm. was no choir girl. And we have to be reminded sometimes, because it's easy to forget. It's easy to fall for the the myth of meritocracy in that moment. King was murdered and he quite literally was a choir boy, right? Mm-hmm. Like MLK, right? Quite literally grew up a choir boy. It's not just everyday people who make mistakes and, and, and kind of go through the ups and downs of life who then find themselves on the wrong side of this, this machine, this supremacy. It's anyone who gets on the wrong side or who supremacy decides needs to be put in its place, then finds themselves subject to the final answer, this this idea that you will either take the place I've given you or you will die, you know, this kind of thing. Tori and Sharon, I was wondering if you could talk a little about, like, these same kinds of myths. If you could talk a little about them from the point of view of the damage that they do to the one perpetrator, not, not just to Black folk or indigenous folk, but to white folk who, who, who feel like that those myths are part of their story.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that this is, this is really important. The myth of whiteness, right? And, and white neutrality, um, it's dehumanizing to white people also right? Just in a very different way. Generally, it becomes this kind of this wedge, right? That is used to frequently used to keep people of color and white people from working together to solve common problems that we have, right? Because there are there are many people who are white who have some like many of the same issues that we have. And ultimately, we're concerned about our kids right we're concerned about how safe our neighborhoods are so while we're being dehumanized right by whiteness and being told oh you don't care about violence in your community right you don't care if your kids ever get to school it's also it's also dehumanizing to white folks because they are kind of they're the prop that is supposed to be in between us and like power i think that with this idea that you know if you work hard if you have bootstraps, like you can make it. I know it's really common. It's just in terms of what we tell ourselves. And I think that it's probably more true for white people (laughs) than it is for people of color. Um, But it's just, it's just, it's just false, right? Like the data does not, does not back it up. I mean, if you were born in the bottom 20%, of income earning families in the U S your likelihood of making it to the top 20% is 3%. Um, there's not very much room right on the ladder.
1: <laughs> mm.
3: Right. So the ladder is like being pulled up and it's being pulled up on white people now too, which is what I think is very interesting and why we're kind of in this weird moment where we're having conversations about accessibility. We're having conversations about housing, right? Um, Because white folks have pulled the ladder up on other white folks also. Mm. And again, like this cause, I'm like, I'm laughing, but this causes harm to white people too, right? They also, suffer because of white supremacy. It just, it has so much buy-in among white people, right? And really just respectability. That's all it comes down to is your humanity is dependent on your behavior. So yeah, there's there's, there's just so many ways that it plays out. When you are raised in a space where you are taught to, where you, where dehumanizing people, pathologizing people based strictly on you know, the color of their skin. If you, like, that, that is a dehumanizing thing for a child to experience. And what's really fascinating to me is that most white parents don't even realize that they're doing this, training their Ooh. children, that they're coding their children to have these yeah. pathologizing responses to us, um, that they are training their children to dehumanize us. And I think that you know part of part of what plays into this in terms of imagery and culture is like the overrepresentation of whiteness in white spaces. Like if you were walking around in 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 a normal, like in a white space, right, in a white neighborhood, segregation looks like the norm when you look at the imagery that they surround themselves with. right. So they're internalizing this message that actually segregation is normal, actually um, pathologizing people of color for all of their character flaws, which, you know, you can work to overcome, apparently. The whole bootstrap's argument, once again, putting this whole respectability goalposts move to wherever I need them to be to keep you from becoming fully human. Doing that to children is extremely dehumanizing. Like, cutting children off from from empathy, literally, like, that's a horrifying, abusive thing to do. Yeah. As a parent, as a teacher, as as a community, as a culture, and and this is constantly being done to small white people who then become big white people and have no empathy, have no frame of reference for anyone else's humanity, right? Never mind our perspectives. And so, yeah, we repeat this cycle over and over and over again, raising white folks who who then like are dehumanizing themselves because they feel like it. They have to dehumanize the rest of us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I, you know, that makes me think of what happens to young black and brown kids who are subjected to that same influence, right? Like because, you know, the overwhelming, at least up until recently, right? Like most teachers were white women. Mm -hmm. And 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 so this same dynamic, you know, what's good for my own children will be good for for your children. And Mm -hmm. we could go on all day about the impacts of that on the psyches, not just yeah. of young white children, oh, but young black and brown children. But Sharon, let me, let me see if I can tease this question just a, a, a bit more and ask about, kind of remembering a conversation you and I have had, uh, but I can't remember all the particulars about it. But um, I wanna ask about the buy-in, why people, why one might be inclined to buy into myths like these, even when they know the negative impacts that such myths are having on themselves and they can see the impact that it's having on others.
4: Yeah, you know, if I can just start with, uh, I was just thinking as you were, t- like, as you were um, teasing out these myths, I'm so interested in the way that they're related, you know, like that innocence, supremacy, mediocrity, no meritocracy. Interesting slip. Um, that <laughs> they that and that and I love like I I love Melvin that you use perpetual innocence and not just innocence but it's perpetual. That they feed off of one another. I know for me in my journey that the myth of meritocracy was was one of the hardest ones. And then I could sort of I I was able to see like I don't see myself. I have not internalized myself as having a myth of supremacy. But if you look at the way that the myth of meritocracy works, then you can see, oh yeah, how am I perpetuating a sense of perpetual innocence? And how is that contingent on a notion of supremacy? So like, I just wanted to give like a a really concrete example of that happened to me about eight years ago. And I had a job interview that I was very nervous about, and um, you know, I was just—I was worried. You know, as, as women in this country, we're often not sort of seen, taken seriously, or we or we carry that anxiety. So I was carrying that anxiety, but you know, as a white woman who dresses well, who's cisgender, um, even though I identify as queer, I, you know, I appear heteronormative, right? In when I go into a workspace. And I went into this job interview, and when I came out afterward, I was talking to a close friend of mine who's a genderqueer Latinx um, woman. And I said, you know, when I walk into a space, I just assume that I'm gonna be liked. I kind of know how to make that work. And she said, that's so interesting. When I walk into a space, I assume I will never be liked, and that Mm. I have to work extra hard just to be able to be taken seriously because people are going to have a bias against seeing me as somebody that's likable. And I hadn't really, you know, and this was at a point where I thought I had done my work. I thought, I, you know, I thought it was on that journey, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it just took me back. And I realized how I was operating under this myth of meritocracy that was perpetuated on this on this notion of supremacy of superiority that I didn't actually see myself as, I did not see that in myself. I didn't see myself as operating under a system of superiority and supremacy, but it was, uh, it's underneath that and it's made possible. It's fueled by this sense of innocence. I think what gets hard for, to get to your question, what gets hard for white folks often is it is actually destabilizing to realize that this world where you thought You know, I don't want to say, like, I don't think I had a a leave it to beaver kind of upbringing, but I still, I had a sense that the world worked in a kind of fair way. And you have to realize, holy, uh, can I say this on
3: our podcast? (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs)
4: Like this is, no, it absolutely doesn't. And then you have to look at and this is sort of really to, um, to, you know, I think Tori was kind of getting at this with this notion of empathy, of the way in which holding on to that myth and that sort of innocence, that perpetual innocence of goodness, like has actually collapsed empathy. But it, sometimes it doesn't come, it's not necessarily the first thing that you see. But so I sometimes think that Mary, I'm I really would be curious around, you know, in the work that Sterling and Tory do, like if if they agree or disagree with this, but I sometimes think meritocracy is a really good doorway in because it's pretty clear to see how it's not working. And then from that, I think you can get to the way that it's undergirded by this notion of perpetual innocence and it's grounded in a notion of supremacy.
3: Yeah, I, I, I think that I use that kind of angle with folks all the time with white folks that I'm talking to because there is still sort of this idea of well facts matter data data matters so if you if you have data if you have receipts then i might be willing to listen to you right so in terms of of meritocracy being a myth like it very clearly is like there's so much data that we've collected over the last 50 60 years on the ways in which our system is absolutely completely biased towards whiteness, right? And also committed to like making people of color hate one another so that we don't actually get anything done, right? So this is like another piece of it that's that's working is the ways in which whiteness is kind of telling these stories of like, oh well, black people hate Asian people, right? or whatever that whatever the situation is. Yeah. And so, um, I think that when you, when you really dig into the data, it's, I mean, it's very fascinating to just go like, okay, well explain to me if everything is, you know, free and fair and everybody who has bootstraps gets to do what, you know, e- anyone else who has bootstraps gets to do, regardless of what they look like. Right. Or, or their, you know, their race, their gender, whatever, you know, please explain to me. Why is it that it takes black people 40% longer to find work than white people? Like,
1: just you didn't know we're lazy
3: but again <laughs> we're, we're when you look at the data when you look at whose whose applications are being passed over it's ours yes right yes Yeah. again it's yeah there's that that is that whole thing of like well maybe you weren't applying for as many jobs like like i see this all the time right there was a big study that came out um maybe last summer at this point on uh just the ways the ways that black people are overcharged on interest rates for mortgages which is illegal but they still do it and um there were there were several reply guys on twitter that were like well um what if black people just you know have lower credit scores then what (laughs) you think that we don't know to control for a credit score like really anyway um <laughs> just like did you think about the fact that it was like yeah we're, we're comparing people that have identical applications and the white family gets a lower interest rate like catch up yeah. um <laughs> yeah. yeah but again like that's just another that's just another piece of data that's like you were telling me that this is working and my experience is telling me that it's not working right and our ancestors have been saying for a minute Kind of since we got here this isn't working and now we finally have data and then all of a sudden the goalposts start moving all over the place
1: yeah as if data was the thing that was missing was
3: hold right was holding the back
1: (laughs) we just you know we, we we just couldn't couldn't hadn't studied it enough to know that we, but this is how whiteness dis- <laughs> operates,
3: right? Is this lens of like I'm pulled back, I'm not emotionally invested, I am objective, I can observe what is happening here without having any emotional involvement, which again, like this dehumanization and like stunting of your own empathy, which is gross. And then it's like, oh, today you found out what like our ancestors have been saying for a real long time, didn't you? And it makes me mad and happy at the same time because I'm like, we've known this. Hello. <laughs> This is yeah. this is not new information. It's like, oh my God, we just found out this, you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah, yeah, we've been telling you that. Why weren't you listening? Um.
1: It's it's kind of like when uh when folks say, it would be really nice if we could start a conversation about this thing as if we haven't been conversing about it since
2: 1619. But let, well, me, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, no, let me say, let me no, say. Oh, please, come on. I just wanted to say one thing to, to Sharon's point about, you know, kind of in this work and kind of entering in on this whole myth of meritocracy to sort of bring this critique, this sort of racialized critique to just kind of how our society works, right? You know, I, I don't, I don't know that, um, so this work that we're building, uh, for particularly for Black and Brown folks, that's something that we're going to hit hard, you know, in terms of that bursting the myth of meritocracy. Heretofore, in the work that I've been doing, I think one of the ways that we've gotten at that is just really going in and just talking about the creation of whiteness, because what we know is is that a lot of white people don't believe they have race, right? It's 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 don't realize it is whiteness that's what that is what was created not not these sort of other categories whiteness was created right and so i think that it's it's sort of important to kind of look at that because i think that interrupts this idea that tory just raised about white folks saying you know i'm objective you know i'm removed from this i bring sort of this sort of sober unemotional, detached, objective view of all of these things when we know that that is just a pile of stuff, right? We, we know that that's not true. And so, you know, the, the sort of counter to this whole meritocracy thing is that actually it is the question of power, right? So this whole thing about success being based upon you know, your demonstrated abilities and all that kind of things, actually success is actually based on power to create reality, power to make and change the rules at your, without discretion, power to control resources and make decisions that affect your life and others, right? Like that's what equals success. And so I think that it, it's, a, it's a really kind of important thing to address, that power question, and just kind of keep that on the table uh, when when sort of having these dialogues. And I'll say the last thing, Melvin, that that uh, um, you know was just raised about this whole thing about you know whiteness and objectivity and neutrality and that sort of thing. It you know this thing comes down to a, to to like again like how we know stuff and what we trust, you know, as truth and our sources of truth, mm-hmm. you know, and how we know what we know. You know, and um, I think when you don't have things that can be sort of, sort of borne out by the metrics of kind of white dominant culture, then it becomes a problem, right? Katie Cannon says, we don't need a study, right? Because we know it in our bones, right? Embodied mediated knowledge, right? Ashe, so, so we Ashe. carry this. And so it is that is that kind of thing. And so when you put those things in conversation, right, you've got a conflict, you, you, you've got a problem, because what we're saying is, Melvin, to your point, we're saying what we've been saying since 1619. <laughs> and, and, and you're saying, you know, kind of as white dominant culture, well, prove it, show us, you know, show us the, 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 the numbers on this, show us. Right, where this, uh, where this racism is, is playing out and taking place, right, when it's embedded and built into the structures of our society, and we're just kind of swimming in that water every day.
1: Mm. So let me advance our conversation around the point of power. Because, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, you know, it would be bad enough if the damage that were done by these myths and by these constructs were just limited to the psyche, but they're not, right? Like they, they, they are material, like power manifests in material way. And so I was, one, I, I, I was wanting to get you to talk a little with us about the material ways you've seen infatuation with whiteness or We could say infatuation with being on top played out in your own life and the lives of those around you. What are the material ways that you've seen this infatuation take shape?
3: I think one thing that's been really interesting for me um, is the the way that colorism kind of plays into it, right? And that I am given much more access to power just because I have light skin. Than people with dark skin, right? I'm given more proximity to whiteness. They feel that I am more trustworthy because mm. I am lighter, mm. right? And they don't know this. They have no idea that this is the true, right? I, that this is true. I'm like the token diversity ornament that they have on their tree. And sometimes, like the way that I explain it to people is, it's like you know, I'm I'm not I'm not given power, right? But I'm given the key card. And I know that like, they can disable it at any time, right? But in the meantime, I'm just gonna be like, Okay, well, let's all get in here. Well, nobody's looking right. (laughs) But, But that like, and that's honestly how I feel. I'm supposed to behave right is is engaging with this power structure of whiteness, and breaking all of the rules that I can, right? If nobody's, mm. if nobody's gonna be hurt, like I'm gonna break all of the rules of whiteness because this is not how this is gonna go down, right? Um, in, in, this, in this space, right? Um, whiteness as a construct was created to be invisible, right? It was never created to be seen. Yeah. I'm a person, why do you have to bring race into this?
1: Yes. Right? Yes. And that's
3: why we see these violent reactions when we start naming whiteness. Yeah, because whiteness was never supposed to exist. It was supposed to be this invisible thing that, like you said, contains perpetual innocence and meritocracy and bootstraps and supremacy. And we just work harder than everybody else. I don't know what to tell you. Um, so yeah, I think that you get these really you get these really strong reactions when you start naming whiteness and saying, "Look, this is a thing that you created.
1: Yeah, yeah. and you
3: are benefiting from it." And you're benefiting from it at the expense of people of color.
1: Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. not just emotional reactions too, right Like material right, reactions. Like
3: actual violence.
1: Actual physical violence. Yes. Um, but not even you know uh, everything mm-hmm. doesn't go to the point of violence, right Like like in, it, there, there are other material ways in which, Um, this infatuation with being on top, this infatuation with supremacy manifests itself.
2: A a really kind of concrete example for me is that I think you all all know that at one time I was a pastor there in a uh, rural sort of rural county in North Carolina. And one of the things that I've, where I think I've seen this play out is kind of my refusal in that context to be the acceptable Negro. And, and so, so, so what, that, what that means is I think that particularly being in a relatively conservative religious environment That is cloaked in sort of white evangelicalism. And being, I think there's an assumption in that context where being part sort of of that religious community, uh, although a predominantly black kind of institution in that religious community, there is this narrative about, hey, we are good Christian folk and we get along and it's all kumbaya and all those kind of things, right? And when you yes, have indeed. somebody who is not going to be, who's gonna be prophetic and tell the truth, mm-hmm. right? When you, when you sort of, so you bump up against kind of those kind of conventional notions of how we're supposed to be as religious community, then what you see is you don't, uh, you don't get invited, you know, to certain tables. You, you're not gonna make the mayor's prayer breakfast, you know, yes, you're not yes. going to, uh, everybody is going to stop coming to your King Day celebration to, yeah. to you know, cause yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. Kumbaya yeah, yeah. anymore, you know. Yeah. so I, It's I, not I, I just join
1: hands and saying the old right. words of the old Negro spiritual, right? Like it's right. not little black
2: boys <laughs> and
1: little black girls and holding, you know, all the yes. things.
2: <laughs> See we shall overcome, right? Yeah. It's, not, it's not that, right? And so I, I think, but, but I, I think that that is a larger, kind of, um, it points to a larger sort of uh, idea about not staying in one's place. Yeah. And, and, and so this sort of infatuation with whiteness has this whole, uh, there's this, this sort of, I don't wanna call it a dance because I'm clear about it, but there is this sort of uh, reality and there's this recognition that there can be this expectation of being an acceptable Negro, right? And when you're not that, whatever your context is, then there are implications, right? Of of consequences with that or some kind of feedback or blowback and those sort of things. And I mean, we can take this to many contexts across our country, you know, in terms of what it means for white people to be comfortable with the Negro who is in leadership or in charge or, you know, or, you know, because we put him there, right? And, and all of these kinds of things. So it's those kinds of things that I think that this sort of is concrete example in my own life is sort of a, 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 an example of something larger.
1: And, and for those who may not know how to interpret those implications uh, in, in what Sterling shared, right? Like those consequences aren't just kind of um, kind of being on the outs kind of the way that w- would happen if you were in a clique, right? Like, in, and so you, you've kind of lost favor with people. Those consequences turn into, right, like reduced opportunities for professional advancement, yes, uh, reduction in the amount of, uh, uh, of earning potential that you have, which impacts not, not j- uh, uh, an entire family. Right. And, 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 and the prospects for an entire family and not just nuclear family, right? Like many of us are supporting loved ones who are siblings and loved ones who are parents and loved ones who, you know, who 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 are trying to 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 find their way back into society because for whatever reason they you know they found, found themselves in jail or whatever the case may be right like in and then they're dealing with so again these these consequences are material in nature and not just emotional and psychological and spiritual and, and and social right like they they actually affect people's lives
4: yeah it's so real and i was thinking i mean i think that um a lot of the work for white folks that are willing to be on this journey is to get a whole lot braver about breaking with allegiance to whiteness. And um, because it's everywhere, right? Like when you start to wake up to it, you just see it. It's like, where is it not? Where is it not showing up in terms of the positions that white folks can get, the sense of the safety net. I mean, one thing that, you know, Melvin, you and I have talked about this before, I grew up with some pretty significant learning disabilities when I was younger. But because I grew up in a upper middle class white family that had, you know, through generations accrued some level of white wealth, I wasn't tossed onto the street. I got to not only go to college, but I got to go after a doctorate I got to go after a doctorate in English literature, which is not exactly a degree that's going to um, make somebody rich. But I had the luxury of being able to do that because of the safety net that had been there from, from you know, decade to decade. You know, like the, the, the recognition of that, that habit forming that needs to happen about the continual recognition of these things and not falling into the perpetual innocence and being willing to call out inequity in spaces is a lot of the work that white folks have to do. And it and it does, it's not the same consequences what Sterling's speaking to, but it does have consequences. You do often get kind of shunned from the party if you're the if you're the white person who's going to call out, I'm going to break the silence on this sort of the happy club. It's not easy um, and it's, but that's kind of the work I think that we've gotta be doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it stands to reason that if we're going to take this journey toward equity together, we have got to disabuse ourselves of some of these infatuations. A friend of mine, uh, Melba Sampson of Pink Road Chronicles, uh, shout out to my soul trust, she once described it as throwing an eviction party for all the people and places and things that take up residence in my head, spirit, psyche, womb, etc. rent free. Describing it as an eviction party kind of implies taking pleasure in doing this kind of pre-work. And so, you know, Sterling, I was wondering, I've heard you speak of BIPOC folks needing to find pleasure in the work of equity as opposed to being so, uh, to seeing it as so labor intensive. Um, and I'd, I'd love for you to tell us about the possibilities you see there.
2: Yeah, Melvin, I appreciate that. So I, I think um, when we were pulling together this table of Black leaders from various organizations to begin to think about what it means to be doing this work around racial equity in different contexts. We were having a conversation about the labor, and one of the sisters said, you know, I have to give myself permission and sometimes talk myself into resting. Yeah. And she said, it's something about the way I was raised that I have to actually give myself permission because I don't want to feel guilty, right? (laughs) About taking rest and not sort of being on the battlefield as it were, 24-7, 365, right? And so Melvin, one of the things that occurs to me, and this is going to seem trite, it's going to seem uh, a really small thing But one of the things is about really making rest part of the revolution. There
1: we go, there we go. Say something more about
2: it. Let me me do this. So Fannie Lou Hamer was talking to her mother and she wondered one day uh, to her mother, she said, I asked my mother why we were not white. And she said, the reason that I asked my mother why we weren't white is because black people were doing all the work and had nothing, and the white people had everything and weren't doing any of the work. Mm. Fast forward to the 21st century and Angela Rye, shout out to Angela, Angela Rye said, we built this joint for free.
1: Yes. Indeed. Right.
2: And then if we sort of sort of take a turn and go over to Trisha Hershey, the nap, the nap, 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 the nap bishop,
1: right? Yes.
2: She said that if anybody needs the rest it's the black folks. Right? <laughs> and so, so I, I started that's putting all of these things together and thinking about how we really have in our mind need to deal with the kind of racialized myths that develop and grow around the myth of the super, the superhuman, right? you know, for mm. Black folk, that's mm-hmm. the myth of the super Negro. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. It, and it, is, it is specified, Michelle Wallace helped us back in the 70s, because it specified the myth of the superwoman, right? And all of the things that Black women. So, yes. so, so I think that there are these things that we have to sort of deal with, because what we were, what the desire was for us to be is to be labor and not people. And so this whole thing about rest and somehow flipping the narrative from actually the hardest working people to being lazy. And to that point, the, the no-working people to being the hardest working people and white folks, flipping that narrative mm-hmm. somehow also has, has sort of fed, right? And, and these these narratives about who we're supposed to be. And that listen, that we can take it. Yeah right? That we have yeah. superpowers, the magical Negro, right? We're super immune. And so we can take it. Not only can we take it, that means that they also can treat us the way they want to treat us, right? So I think, I think Melvin, really, there's a piece of kind of really examining those kinds of myths and disabusing ourselves of those things, and then thinking about how it is that we take care of ourselves, right? So we can even have prospects of, of experience in this joy that I'm gonna talk about in just a minute. But, but those are the kind of things, Melvin, I think that are really important in terms of thinking about actually being human, just being human, right? As a portal towards us finding uh, this joy uh, in our work.
1: Let's get to that joy piece, right? Like, so you're talking about rest, And I remember previously when we were setting this thing up, you were talking about respite. And one of the ways my mind kind of differentiates the two of them, even though it probably isn't, is, is that respite has to do with the things we do to take care of ourselves. And rest has to do with the things we don't do, right? Like, like we're giving ourselves permission not to do, so to speak. But you know, so we have this rest and we have this respite of taking care of ourselves. And then the joy, go on and speak about joy.
2: Yeah, Melvin, thank you for that. I, I wanna name joy as resistance and I wanna say it's more than resistance, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. important. I think that's important because it is not just sort of sort of a pushback right against that which has been externally imposed upon us in terms of oppressive su- systems and it definitely is but joy is something that we have right as black and brown folks that comes out in all kinds of genius in artistry mm-hmm. right in the way that we express ourselves and that that is that's something that is in us that ha- may have nothing to do with these oppressive forces that we've had to navigate. But from the standpoint of joy as resistance, you know, Audre Lorde said something really interesting. And what she talked about is, is she talked about how oppressive systems seek to distort the various sources of our power within culture to produce energy for change. And she said one of those things is she used the word the erotic. But what she meant in that was not necessarily erotic, the sexual, but erotic in terms of that, of that energy, right? That energy, which produces this sort of, uh, this will for change, right? Yes, yes, and so, yes. And, so, and so this thing about joy as resistance is about feeling, jo- uh, experiencing joys in a, in a way that it uh, produces energy for change, but also that it actually touches something that is deeply human so that we might see one another. So there is a way in which this joy, particularly within black and brown communities, and I believe across black and brown communities and white communities as well, but can, can actually produce a bridge, right? For some kind of unity, because there's something very human about this experience around joy. It is also about feeling emotions, right? And, and, and sort of producing this energy for resilience. Uh, to fight against racism and that sort of thing. It is about inspiring hope, you know, feeling, the, feeling this joy, being able to feel, feel this joy. The way in which this is a resistance is that it is also sort of a pushback against the control of my body, right? Yeah. Uh, feminist scholars uh, have often talked about this whole thing. I'm um, thinking about this one feminist scholar that talks about this whole thing that uh, of the body in the body for black and brown people, certainly in the control of the body and the even the experiencing of joy as being political kinds of dynamics. Because on the one hand, the oppressive system is saying, I've got you in control. On the other hand, when you're experiencing joy, that's a sign of rebellion because it's, it's, it's saying that I didn't tell you, right? What you are so happy for. Mm. I didn't tell you to be happy. Mm. I didn't tell you to be joyous. Mm. Uh, in fact, it puts us in the kind of situation in a white supremacist culture that joy becomes rebellious for us because we're in a culture that tells us to be quiet. Listen, when everybody else is loud, tells us to be small, when everybody else is being you know, being big, to be less than human, right? To be what the system has told us to be. It, it has told us to be numb. Don't be angry. And I told you on the first broadcast that it's okay to be angry and don't be joyful. It's okay to be joyful. We can be both of those things. Just be numb mm. is what. The, and, and be, a, be a little more than a corpse. Wow, wow. Right, wow. that I control. So this joy thing is about uh, breaking out, right? Of this kind of, you know, cage as it were, that says that you have to be in a certain place and that when you express joy, that that is actually uh, expressing some kind of sovereignty over your life, mm. right? And Ooh. so that's where it comes to, to resistance.
1: Certainly, the image that comes to my mind is the way the trans sisters danced yes, in sir. front of the police during, during, during the many, many Black Lives Matter protests danced oh, for their lives. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded, I'm trying to remember Mickey's last name, Mickey down here in Atlanta, uh, talking talking about, the, you know, the girls like to see us twirl. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, oh, <laughs> it fills your soul, right? And the way that people danced on the, on, on, the, uh, on the voter lines when they were standing in those long-ass lines to vote the last administration on up out of here. Right, uh, here in Georgia, where, where, where uh, there, there were places that, that would be shut down in the midst, in, in the midst of, uh, of folk trying to be in line to vote. You know, folk would lose uh, cords to machines and, and nonsense or, or, be, or, or have to stand in those lines and then be told, oh, well, this isn't your precinct, precinct. And if you didn't know the law and know that you could get a provisional ballot Right, like then you had to go stand in some other line somewhere else. The activists in the area said, "No, no, 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 we can't let them steal our joy," and so they stood out there, and and folk brought out the drums, and bro- folk folk brought out the dance, and it's like we we will have our day. Oh man, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Um Okay, here, uh, I, I really want to talk to you, Tori, and you, Sharon, about the potential of. Pl- of, of, of white folk finding pleasure in throwing their own eviction parties. Uh, but before we go there, you know, I, 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 Tori, you know, I'm struck by this phenomenon that we often see of whiteness policing BIPOC joy.
3: I always, I always altered the um, saying when you're accustomed to, pr- to, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Um, so I'm always trying to like put my own little twist on that. (laughs) I'm like, when you're accustomed to being the slaver, going out into the field and picking your own cotton feels like violence.
2: Mm, mm, Right. mm,
3: And mm. I find this so interesting because work actually isn't violence. Right. Like when you're good at something like that's incredibly fulfilling, even if it's not something that's necessarily going to change the world. Mm -hmm. Just, just like, the idea of, of being very competent at what you were doing, right? Excelling mm-hmm. at what you were doing, even if you know what, what that looks like might not look like a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Delivering mm-hmm. the mail,
1: mm-hmm.
3: checking people out at the grocery store, like being good at something, like bring, is, is something that brings you joy. And I think that it, I, I'm so fascinated by this phenomenon in whiteness where it's like, no, 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 no. Like me having to do my own work is violent. <laughs> Against me, <laughs> right?
1: Yeah, and so yeah, like yeah.
3: trying to kind of pull that away because they do. They have this. They have this like b- very strange lens. I don't. I don't know what to call it. Right. Yeah. This very bizarre framing around around Black joy.
1: So you know, I mean that you know, that that reminds me of you know the the whole phenomenon of white tears, right? Like in yep. in, in the idea of having to be confronted with inequity, then. It undoes me, right? Like, like, like you know, for for some people, right? Like, and again, yeah. that's 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 some of that kind of racial labor, right? Like having to do your own racial labor, having to carry your own water. Oh, you're gonna have to read a book. Uh-huh. Oh, you're going to have to change some ideas. Oh, you're gonna have to talk to some people that you normally don't talk about, right? Uh, uh-huh. Or talk to. Um, yes. the, this can feel violent. Mm-hmm. But if you can push past that mo that that the, those ideas, what you can find on the other side of it is that pleasure of a good day's work, right? right? Like yeah. like like that pleasure of a good day's work, and that's why we end our our we've ended our podcast with that. That's a good day's yeah. work, right? Like yeah. you've done some work. This yep. was not easy. These yep. ideas are challenging. This does shake yeah. some of the foundation of where you sit. Mm-hmm. So, so let's, since, we're, since, since you took us to this place of pleasure, let's go a little further and, and bring Sharon into this part of the conversation. Sharon, um, this, uh, this business of white people throwing their own eviction parties and finding pleasure in kicking out right like like uh, kicking out these these notions of being on top that has cost both white folk and people of color mutually right like it's it's not like uh, we may have paid more of that bill but it has it, it, that bill has been paid by us all right i remember you telling me about some, so, uh, some work you and some white colleagues were doing trying to tease out this idea of cultivating relationships of accountability with friends of color, not as acts of disinvestment, but as mm-hmm. acts of self-love. Yeah. And the pleasure in that self-love. Talk to us about
3: it. So
4: what I'm teasing out, and this might seem contradictory, but accountability is an act of self-love. Like when we think about self-love, people often think about that as the same thing as self-indulgence. That's often in common um, valence, how people will talk about self-love. And I think love is never that, right? Like love can never just be contained in one body. The thing about accountability is that it says that I matter enough that somebody else is go, It's i I'm, I matter enough that I can make a difference to somebody else. If somebody else can count on me, if they can rely on me for something, and that that is an actual act of self love, I get to feel good about myself because there are people out there that are counting on me. I matter in the world. Like I think that sometimes, if you move away, if you look at like this whole stuff around cancel culture, and so if you just move away for a moment from all the ways in which that is just being played out politically and see, well, what what's the fear underneath that? And I think that part of that fear is of a complete isolation. Like I don't get to, I, I don't matter to anything. Like I can say something and, oh my God, I'm gonna be off on an island.
0: Mm. And so the
4: work, it seems to me, is, wor- is deep work about accountability. But it's gotta start with truth-telling because you can't get to self-love if you can't tell the truth. And so you've got to go through the dark night of the soul. You know, you've got, you're going to have to struggle some and you're going to have to. And then I think if I can just say this, I'm really interested in this question around labor and holding the labor in community and that white folks need to be doing more labor now. And at the same time, I think what we don't want to do, I was really persuaded by um, the 1619 project and the sense of. The way in which our whole construct of labor has been defined by slavery, and that we see that playing out in the in the Amazon factories, right? And so, like white people that are hired in those places are also their bodies are also like not respected as human. Yes. So there needs yes. to be a human side, like we like we need to redefine labor. And when we think about who is the larger community, it's like well. We're at a moment when white people might need to do a bit more work, but it doesn't mean that we just lift, it, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that we just turn the tables. It's like yeah. we need to redefine work, and white people are going to need to hold more, but they're holding it in as an act of love and in in a structure of accountability.
1: Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm
4: kind of trying to play out. I don't know if I that love I, just,
1: I love okay. it. I love it. You know, just to be clear, we're talking about accountability to those most impacted. Let's, let's finish with this question. You know, this idea of positioning one's heart on the front end of an equity journey to find pleasure in the work of equity. It's really powerful stuff. And it presupposes that the work of equity can ultimately be about healing, it seems to me, as opposed to about generating a lasting sense of loss, right? because you know we can enter into this that way, right? Like we can enter into this work thinking, I have to give up so much, right? But no, 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 I have to, I can choose to chase healing, right? And so my final question to you is, how does one keep the party going through all the ups and the downs, the ebbs and the flows of equity work, right? Like, cause each of us knows that uh this thing isn't always sunshine and rainbows, right like like they, it 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 can be really, really challenging. How do you keep the party going for yourself?
3: um, so for me, what I personally do and I try, you know, I tell everybody to do this. my thing, frankly, is just like going for a hike. right here we go and I because it gives me this opportunity to kind of meditate on all the stuff that I have taken in, right? And to meditate on my ancestors, right? And, and to meditate on the people who who had their land stolen that I'm now walking on because of all of these wild things that happen that like, why do I even exist, right? So it gets, it gets existential very quickly, but um, having like being in this space where you don't have the like distractions, right? it's not, you're not sitting at your desk. You're not like picking up your phone. It's just like being fully present in your body. Mm. For me, like that's something that really helps me sort of process the grief, which biologically, like we have to do that, right? We have to process, we have to find a place and a space to process on both sides, right? On both sides of it. So I think that for, for white folks, like maybe it does feel like grief. Maybe it does feel like loss when you're first starting out and kind of going, Oh my God, what, what is happening right now? Um, But yeah, I think just looking at the science aspect of it, like your nervous system needs space to like have a, a, like a more expansive sort of experience. Right. The other one is like just going out into the middle of nowhere and looking at the stars. Right. Like there's, there's nothing that compares to that, right? Mm. And it makes you feel so small, and it puts you in your place so quickly. I don't know. This, yeah. These are just my things, right? No, these are my spiritual practices. As an I atheist.
1: love them. I love them, and and you know, my own lived experience attests to that. In recent years, I've started exercising more, and uh, I, I am beginning. It, it took me a while, but I I, I eventually started to realize that. When I get a thing in my body, it makes it easier for me to get it in the other ways that I need to, whether it be intellectually or emotionally yes. or spiritually. Like it, it roots me and it grounds me. So I, yeah. I, I love, I love that you started there, Sharon.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think. I mean, both for me and I would say for white folks that are doing this work too, it's really important to get some grounding in something that is not about your power. Um, you just gotta have that because the work is really about dismantling power. And so you're gonna like, so to be, it, you can't do that work without being a mess to other people if you don't if you're not also simultaneously finding that place and i think that's where spiritual homes are really valuable for me i've been like um um i've been gardening lately and it's been just mm-hmm. to be digging in the earth and kind mm-hmm. of being part of recognizing that the the ways in which i'm supporting life happening on mm-hmm. a daily basis is really a powerful well there i'm using that word power but it's a different kind of power it's a powerful feeling as opposed to a power over and so I think that those kind of and you know what Tori was saying like is it if it's in nature but something that is free that's not connected to power and then get practice just get practiced at that because you're gonna need that grounding in order to be able to do the work I mean the other thing for me is is community and my friends and and like, but you're gonna try your friends out if you don't have that grounding.
1: <laughs> Tell that truth. Well,
4: <laughs> no, then you're 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 laughing a little too hard at that. <laughs> I think I might have tried you out a few times. But you are gonna do that. You know, you have to like you so say you gotta do that 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 counter work, I think.
1: No, no, you you you, you haven't tuggered me out at all. and, and I really really appreciate you naming gardening and like connecting with the soil, you know, and and one of the ways that, uh, that I've experienced or found that you can get out of the power over dynamic is taking time to learn the rhythms of nature right, and, and getting in, in line with the rhythms of nature as opposed to trying to exert that control that comes kind of with conventional gardening where I'm gonna use, I'm gonna do anything I want to and throw a bunch of fertilizer on it and a bunch of pesticides right. on it and make it serve me, right, like as opposed right. to, no, 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 how do, wh- what does, what is nature trying to do? What is it trying yeah. to teach me? And then in and, and doing that, right, like it, it gets you right into that place that you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm.
2: So Sterling, bring us home. Yeah, Melvin, I really appreciate this question, good brother, Uh, and thank you, Tori and Sharon for just all of the wisdom you all have dropped uh, in the last hour here, uh, and you too, Melvin. Um, So I think there's one thing that I think is two sides of the same coin for me, being in this work, is one side is kind of getting over myself uh, and the other side is, is grace, having grace with myself. And what I mean by that is that uh, embracing the fact that right now is just my time to, be, to do this work, right?
0: Mm. And
2: to trust the genius of my ancestors. Yes. Uh, trust the bit of genius that has been deposited in me and my folk today. Yeah. And trust the genius that will be in our posterity,
0: right? Yes, yes.
2: So, 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 so part of it is, is getting over myself from the standpoint that, hey, man, you ain't gonna fix it all. You don't have the capacity to do that, the ability to do that, but you have the ability to do something right here and right now, yes, right? Yes. And to have grace with myself from the standpoint that it's not always gonna feel like success. It's not always gonna feel like a win. It's not always gonna feel like, you know, we're making progress. Right? Mm. And so, so I think that there's something about a, a particular mentality that I try to cultivate from that standpoint. And one of the things I do, uh, going back and just revisiting and talking with the ancestors, man, and reading the work, I try to get pictures. I look at faces, you know, I look at Ella's face. I look at, I f- I look at Fannie Lou's face, right? I, I, I just try to try to continue to keep those images. I look at my father's face.
1: Yes, yes. I look at his
2: face, yeah. right? I look at him in the face. And so try to, to try to continue to just kind of hold on to that memory, right, and that genius and, and uh, understanding that um, I'm part of a project, man, right, that, that yeah. has deep, deep roots. Yeah. It's, it's my time to kind of keep that project going, right, for that, that something different. So that, 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 that's one thing. And I think this thing of certainly uh, always finding a ways to get into my body, um, because that, that feels like something uh, where uh, I, I, I get in touch with being alive. You know, I get in touch with my breath, I get in touch with my strength, with my body, uh, that I, listen, I, I, am a, I, am a, I am a being, I'm here, you know, and I, I really think about that as I'm exercising, as I'm uh, meditating and breathing. You know uh, that 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 I exists. And so, uh, brother Jaya John says, uh, and in medicine words, uh, uh, medicine words for your brave revolution says, uh, you know, take the risk of living while you're alive, right? <laughs> risk living while you're alive. Like, I love it. I so, love it. And so it's those kinds of things, man. You know, trying to stay in my body. Trying to keep this sober, uh, kind of uh, some sobriety about this, and also some vision yeah. about it as well, and really just embracing the fact that I am—I'm uh, laboring for something, man. Uh, the fruit of which, some of which will be born after I'm gone, yeah. right? Yeah, and 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 I'm all right with that because I got a different sense of time.
1: Yeah, yeah, I feel you. <laughs> it's not—it's
2: not the Western. Construct of time but it is this sort of holistic uh, construct of time where where, where where life you know goes around and around and around you know and you can't you can't do away with life so so I'm, I'm on that and uh and I think lastly my community, you know just mm. uh, being with folks where you can uh cuss when you need to cuss yeah um, you know and you just, need places <laughs> where
1: you can be real
2: <laughs> right and just be who you are man so those yeah. are kind of things that that help keep me going in this in this work.
1: Yeah, I love I, I love it when you talk about looking in people's faces. I, I, I was blessed with a partner with a spouse who uh, who makes sure that we take pictures yeah. and keeps pictures up in the house. And even as we've been been in this time together, I'm sitting here looking <laughs> over here at Vincent Harding and, yes. and, and, and his, his his beloved Al Josie Knight um, and, and, and and they're they're staring staring right at me, right? Like like they they are our cloud of witnesses and our bearing witness, and they're sitting next to the Dalai Lama. So you know, I mean, we're we're, we're good, we're good.
2: <laughs> never, never you gonna start something in here in a minute.
1: <laughs> we're good. Well, good people. I, I think that was a really good day's worth work, and uh, I am so grateful. To have been able to spend this time with you. Well, this is.
3: Coria Williams Douglas,
4: Sharon Groves,
1: Erling Freeman, and Melvin Bray saying thank you for continuing the pre work with us. We'll continue helping you pack your bags for your equity journey tomorrow. And until then, be good to yourself and (laughs) to others.
0: Thank you for tuning in with us. There's a lot to think about, and so we've packed you a little bag to help you in the coming days as you reflect. Consider reading I Am Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. We will continue to add resources to your backpack with each episode. You can also find the links in the podcast show notes or on the pre-work shelf in our Bible app. The pre-work is a product of being in a relationship a program of Auburn Seminary. It has been edited and produced by Crystal Cheatham and our Bible app.